Please open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Last week, um, I think anytime you're going to start focusing on what it means to follow Christ, you're going to come up against some things that are really difficult. Last week was that. Um, Today is as well. But at the same time, it's truth. And it's what it takes for us to uh, live out this life uh, uh, with joy, with hope, uh, being able to persevere through uh, some of the things such as what uh, Becca described. It is what is um, absolutely necessary as well to bring honor and glory to our Savior, to our King. And so this is about what it means, again, to follow Jesus. So let's read, beginning at Luke 14, 25, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you, any of you who does not give up everything, he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, in our text, Jesus uses two illustrations to communicate the same idea. He says, if you want to build a tower, you want to make sure you have all the money you need before you start so you can be sure you can complete the project. And then, as well, if you look at verse 31, 32, he says, if you're a king about to go to war against another king, you better sit down and make sure you have all the resources that uh, you will need to make sure you win. Otherwise, you better settle for some kind of peace. There's this great story, I love this story, about, it's true, true story, about this little guy named Ryan, who is um, uh, just starting his first day of first grade. And Ryan had just uh, finished a year of kindergarten where he had become quite uh, happy, comfortable with going home at noon every day. It's great. Right? And so on his first day... Of first grade, he's getting his things ready to leave for home, 
And he's actually supposed to be heading to lunch with the rest of the class. And Linda, the teacher, asked him, well, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going home. And Linda tried to explain that now that he's in first grade, he would now have a longer school day. And she says, you're going to go now and eat lunch, and then you're going to come back to the room and do some more work before you go home. And Ryan looks at her with this great disbelief, hoping that somehow she's not serious. And then he puts his hands on his hips, and he says, who on earth signed me up for this program? Now, that is a great picture of what Jesus is communicating in this text. He says, if you sign up for the school of following Jesus, make sure you understand the program. Make sure you understand what the cost is going to be. There is risk. There is um, a lot involved. Now, as I think about some of the struggles and the meltdowns in some of our families and marriages over the past year, I I think it's often related to Jesus' concern in our text here. I think what happens very often is people will run against uh, some really hard times where it's really hard to love and to persevere And they lose touch with the resources that can help them through. And the tower remains unfinished. The war gets lost. The McDowell family, the Beringa family are at that kind of a time where, uh, man, it's testing time. And now do you have the resources? Do you have what what you need to persevere through those times? And Jesus says in the text, he says, salt loses its saltiness. And what happens as well is sometimes we get started in the, in, uh, the path of following Jesus. And we fade after a time. But as well, sometimes we never really get going. And we just kind of go at a very low, just barely existing pace in the Christian life. And so we need to understand what it's about. And before we dig into the text, it's helpful to understand why Jesus has stopped at this very moment to address the crowds with this particular message. So turn back with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Once, chapter 9, verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private... And his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now skip to verse 46, <clears throat> chapter 9. Here the, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to have the best position in Jesus' cabinet. They want a a seat at the table of power. 
And verse 54, chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples met some, some Samaritans who did not welcome Jesus, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? How about if we call in some air support and wipe out the whole works? In other words, they don't get it at all, right? And what you see is that Jesus is constantly working to expand and correct this narrow and this twisted view of himself and his kingdom. He was doing it in that day, and it still has to be done for us today. We all have a very narrow and perverted view of the kingdom. We spend our whole lives learning what it really means to follow him. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus sent out 72 disciples into various villages to share what they knew about Jesus. And they were staggered by the power they had been given. It says, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 17, chapter 10. And it's like, look at this power we have. Yes, that's part of it. Chapter 10, verse 25, religious leaders are teaching and acting like they only need to love their family and friends. Man, let's, let's just be one happy family. Let's just hang out with our family. Let's hang out with friends that really affirm us. Uh, that, uh, that's what it's about. That's what life is about. And Jesus says, you're called to love anyone who is in need. So it's not just about you and your family and your small circle of friends. Chapter 11, verse 17. Jesus declared judgment on the Pharisees because they were settling for a religion that was focused on looking good on the outside. In other words, if you do the right things, you will be accepted. Chapter 12. He warns about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says, watch out. He says... Because it's so easy to let your life be defined by stuff. Chapter 12, verse 22. Be careful you don't get consumed with worry about money, clothes, your house, all the basics of life. Because God's always surely going to provide those things for you. Verse 35 in chapter 12. Live in a constant sense of alert and watchfulness, ready for Jesus to return at any time because it will be easy and natural for you to fall asleep on the job to miss the train of Jesus' return altogether. Chapter 13, verse 22, he says, the way of the kingdom, it's really narrow. It's really narrow. And he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. In chapter 13, verse 30. Verse 34, Jesus weeps over the people of Jerusalem because he longed to gather them like a hen gathers her chicks, but they were not willing. And then 14 verse 11, the guests at a feast were all scrambling to take the best seats in the house, trying to grab honor for themselves. And Jesus taught them that whoever whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So again, here it is, over and over, these different new ways of the kingdom of God. Verse, chapter 14, verse 15, those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God will be the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, 
and those who love and invite them. This is tough stuff. And so, what you examine here, when you look through Luke's gospel, what Jesus is is doing is he's addressing this easy, low-cost discipleship. And it's illustrated in this particular cartoon, maybe not very cartoonish actually, maybe not so funny, called The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium everything you wanted in a church, and less. You want to sign up for that one? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. In our text, what Jesus is doing is he's making it clear. If you consider yourself to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that there's a cost. Following Jesus involves a level of commitment that far exceeds what we settle for in our daily lives. And we can see this again in our text. If you look at the context again, Jesus is walking, making his way to Jerusalem. Likely his disciples are following real close behind him. But note in verse 25, there are huge crowds that are following him at a distance. So, at this point in time, Jesus is like a rock star popular teacher. He's got this endless stream of curious people that are trailing behind him. They've heard some of his teaching. They've heard, maybe seen some of his miracles. And he's a wonder. Man, I want to see some more of this. Maybe I can follow him. And at that point, Jesus literally turns around, he addresses the sea of people, and he wants them to understand, he says, listen, he says, following me is not the popular choice, there is a cost, it is a matter of commitment far beyond what you can understand. Amy Carmichael, she was an Irish um, missionary, to India, who knows all about what she's talking about right here, she said this, certain it is that the reason there is so much shallow living, much talk but little obedience, is that so few are prepared to be like the pine on the hilltop, alone in the wind for God. Alone in the wind for God. That's what Jesus' concern is here. He's preparing people to be alone in the wind for him. And the first words here of Jesus had to have been stunning. Look at verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be his disciples. Well, What do you mean, hate my brothers and sisters? That doesn't make any sense. How can that be? Well, throughout Scripture, what we see is that we're not even given the luxury of hating our enemy, let alone those who are nearest and dearest to us. 
So how does Jesus now all of a sudden command us to hate our family members whom we love? Or anyone else that Jesus uh, commands us to love? Well, first of all, it's important to understand what is intended here by the word hate. It is not intended to be understood in a literal way that we would often understand it. There are various other places in scripture where the call to hate simply means to love less. You can find that, for example, uh, the same word used in reference to Jacob's relationship with Leah. And the word is hate, but what it means is he loved Leah. He didn't hate Leah. It says it that he hated Leah. He didn't hate Leah. He loved her less than Rachel. Or you can see it as well in the way that Matthew records the same teaching here. Matthew 10 verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Matthew records it in a slightly different way. And so the word hate here means to love less than. So Jesus is saying then that before you show up for school to follow Jesus, understand the program. You must love Jesus more than your parents, your spouse, kids, sisters, brothers, anyone. And then in verse 28 through 32, he describes how you should make your decision about following him. It should be calculated. It should be delivered. It should, should be informed. You should understand. You should count the cost. Count the cost of the ticket before you get on the train. Now, if you look at verse 33, Jesus goes on to further describe what is the high price of discipleship. He says, in the same way... Any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. Some years ago, in a small church in East Malaysia, at one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and to be baptized. And during the service, there was a visiting missionary there, noticed up against the wall of the church, some worn-out luggage. And he asked the pastor, what's that luggage over there? And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized, and he said to the missionary, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. And so she brought her luggage. She brought her luggage. You and I are called to be willing to bring our luggage. To give up everything we have, our stuff, even our family, in order to follow and obey Jesus. Jesus is to be loved supremely, overall, all stuff, even family. Now, today... It's very easy for us to turn our family into an idol, something that we love as a substitute for Jesus more than Jesus himself. And it seems, I think, culturally, it's easy to do because it seems like it's okay. 
As long as we just kind of, everything, we, it all depends on family. Everything, we hang out with family. It's all about family. There was a study by the Barner Group not too long ago that said that 7 out of 10 adults choose the earthly family over their heavenly father when asked to choose the most important relationship to them. Now, why does Jesus specifically make a point about family in his day? Well, for us today, especially, our possessions work to define us, to form our identity. Your checking account, your house, your furniture, your cars, the labels on your clothes, the shoes, the toys, whatever it is, they all do something for you. They provide some kind of a status, some kind of security, some kind of confidence. Everything is good if we have those things. Well, in a similar way, as Jesus addressed his Jewish crowd and referred to family here, family was a possession that provided a Jew with at least three things. The Jewish family provided status. To be a child of Abraham was to be a cut above all the others. At least a cut, but probably more. Being a Jew made you much more superior than being a Gentile or a non-Jew. And so family gave Jews status. The Jewish family was also mistakenly supposed to give you your salvation. To the Jew, being a descendant of Abraham assured him that he had a place in the kingdom of God. And that was one of the false conceptions um, that John the Baptist warned the Israelites about. Uh, Paul strongly insisted that they were misunderstanding uh, how they came uh, into the kingdom. Um, So if your family could get you into heaven, you would surely have this great sense of dependence on your family. When an Israelite repented, he was also baptized, indicating a break from this mistaken identity Uh, mistaken dependence on this identity as a Jew. And Paul said it himself. He says, my gold-plated family pride is nothing more than dumb. It really doesn't help me. So there were certain elements of Judaism which Paul retained, but there was no dependence upon Judaism for his standing with God or his salvation. So... You have status, you have salvation. The Jewish family also provided security. So today, you and I often have security in the sense of life insurance, social security. We have bank account, we have retirement funds. But an Israelite in Jesus' day didn't have those things. He didn't measure his future security in terms of his insurance policies or Uh, whatever he had in the bank. It was measured in terms of his family. So when Jesus says that you must be willing to hate and forsake all, including family, what he means is that they have to give up their dependence upon family and become dependent on him. So, to be a disciple of Jesus is not only to love him more than anyone or anything else, but it is to also to depend upon him. 
That's what we need to think about from day to day. Am I depending on him? Independence from God is at the core of sin. And dependence on God is at the core of discipleship. You give up dependence on family and stuff as the source of your status and your salvation and your security. And another way to say it is this. To follow Jesus is to find your deepest identity in your relationship and in your service to God. And so we think about where am I finding my identity? Where am I finding my security? Now, there's one more essential element of discipleship. It's found in verse 26 and 27. He says, you must hate even your own life and bear your cross. And these two expressions speak of one reality. When you decide to follow Christ as his disciple, you must surrender any other source of life and you give up your self-seeking. In other words, it's not about you. So, so far what we've seen is that the cost of discipleship is high. You need to think about it very carefully. Number three, you can't do it, and so you have to depend on Jesus. And the Marines, we know, we're looking, they're looking for a few good men. Well, Jesus is looking for a few helpless sinners. That's what he looks for. And does anyone have what it takes to be saved from their sin? We don't. We don't. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Right? Anne Lamott said it this way, God can't clean the house of you when you're still in it. And in the same way, no one here has what it takes either to follow Jesus on an ongoing basis. And that's why Jesus began teaching that in order to be his disciples, you have to hate. In other words, you have to love less. You have to renounce your dependence upon family so that you're going to depend on Christ daily. And so the key element of discipleship is not obedience because uh, we're incapable of obedience by ourselves. A key element of discipleship following Jesus is dependence. Because without him, we can do nothing. Discipleship is not a matter of being all you can be like the army, but coming to Jesus who alone can help you to be what you're called to be. So another way to say it is this. Discipleship like salvation begins by recognizing the high price required and that we're unable to meet it and thus coming to Christ empty-handed Looking to him to do what we cannot. It is Christ first and it's Christ all until we get to the finish line of our journey. It's a matter of loving him supremely and constantly looking to the cross for the power to obey him. Now, how does supreme love for Jesus and obedience change us? What does it look like? As Jesus was speaking to... Uh, the people, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer horrible shame, rejection, and finally death on the cross. And while the crowds were large for a while, the more people understood the cost, the more they just began to kind of fade away. 
And the numbers that were following Jesus continued to diminish until finally Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends and even family to be alone in the wind for God. Jesus did that. And he went on to stand trial so that you will always have an advocate. No matter what comes your way, when we are betrayed and when even, and it does happen in church families and it does happen in our own families, we can be betrayed, we can be beaten down and even when those things happen, we have an advocate. Jesus was betrayed so that you could know his faithfulness. In the midst of everything that can be raining down on you, there is one who is faithful. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? He does that because he loves you. He does that because he loves you. And so now, this is how you and I are changed. Number one... Your love for Jesus intensifies your love for family. So listen to me now. You thought you had to abandon your family, right? You thought you had to kind of uh, just throw them into the background. But that's not what this is about at all. You see, when you bend low to receive the love and forgiveness of Jesus and make him the supreme love of your life, you really don't sacrifice your family. You gain the ability to love and sacrifice in new and stunning ways. C.S. Lewis said it this way, When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards a state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. And I find that to be true in my own life, over and over. When I'm ugly... And not loving my family or those that I should be loving the most. It's always because something or someone else has taken up first place in my heart. More than Jesus. I can only love my wife and others to the extent that I see my own sin... I humbly soak in the love and the forgiveness and the patience that Jesus has for me. And the more I revel in Jesus' love for me, the more I will love him and I will sacrifice myself for others. And so, we're not talking about any kind of sacrifice for your family. None. And for young mothers, young fathers here, and I know, and, and, and what you find so very often is you want the best for your children, and you get them all kinds of stuff, and you provide them with all kinds of activities, and you bring them to all kinds of places and sports, and all, every, you want to give them everything. But the most important gift that you can provide for your kids is your own vibrant love relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Amen? That's what you need to give to your kids. A second way that your love and commitment to Jesus changes you is that your family is actually wonderfully expanded. Jesus puts you first and was abandoned by his father. So you will have a father and a family who love you into eternity. And when we depend on and and love Jesus, we gain the family of God who put the beauty of Jesus on display. In Matthew 12, 48, Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. And so, in other words, what he's saying is the family of God is now the primary family where we are to love and nurture one another. That's our family. WCSG, 91.3 FM here in town. I just heard it again this past week. They occasionally play this song by Jars of Clay called Shelter. And as I heard it, I thought about, yeah, that's it uh, for this message today. The chorus goes like this. God has given us each other, and we will never walk alone. In the shelter of each other, we will live We will live. And so not only do we have Christ, but we have the shelter of each other. That's God's provision. And that's one of the reasons why we gather in small groups. We need the shelter of each other. And finally, a third way that your love for and commitment to Jesus changes you is that you become the welcoming arms of God. As members of this family of God, we're now called to be the welcoming arms of God for those who are still orphans, those who are still separated from God as their father. Psalm 68, another great picture of who God is. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in family. And so now we become the families who love and welcome those who are without family, who are without a loving father in heaven. And that's, again, the reason why Luke records the parable of the great banquet in chapter 14, verse 15, where the servants are commanded to invite the poor, the crippled, the the blind, and the lame. And so what we do is we look for ways to love and care for those who are on the outside without a family, without the love and the affirmation that comes through Christ and his church. And so there are a few who do that through fostering or through adoption, and those are great ways. But we also do it through 180, and some of you are involved in 180 on Thursday nights. It's a way for us to welcome those who are without a family, in a sense, the family of God. There are other ways as well where we can come alongside. Kids Hope is another great way. Come alongside those who are without a family. There are people in the cubicle next to you who need the family of God, who need Jesus. In your classroom, your neighbors. 
And the question now for all of us as we finish up here today is this. Will you choose obedience and love others enough to point them to Jesus? And in light of everything, think about this. Who or what is first in my life? Who or what do I love more than Jesus? And are you living a life of confession and repentance and dependence upon Jesus? You need to know he's worthy of your love. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be depended on. He is good. Let's pray.